Welcome to Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators, students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. Harper Academic calling Gordon Marino. Dr. Marino is a professor of philosophy and director of the Hong Kirkgaard Library at St. Olaf College. The Existentialist Survival Guide, his latest book, offers a fresh look at our modern existence through the lens of well-established existential philosophers, most notably Kierkegaard. Gordon provides existential prescriptions for living with integrity, courage, and authenticity in an increasingly chaotic, uncertain, and inauthentic age. We spoke with Dr. Marino about the book and his own personal experiences with existentialism. So joining us on the phone right now, we have Gordon Marino, author of The Existentialist Survival Guide. And thanks for being with us today, Gordon. Uh, Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Of course. Uh, So to start us off, just to get our terms straight, what is existentialism? Well, existentialism is... um... It's a very broad movement that uh, the, way, the best way to think about it might be the themes that unify existential authors, such as uh, the individual, choice, freedom, um, authenticity, which is uh, subtitle of the book, right? And, uh, but it, there's a lot of disagreement about who is an existentialist and who's not. They're actually, the only, really the only two uh, philosophers who identified themselves as existentialists were uh, John Paul Sartre and... Um, Simone de Beauvoir. And I guess now we can count you as um, an existentialist author. Oh, yeah. Definitely got an existential perspective. (laughs) Existential perspective is this inside-out idea, this thinking from a first-person perspective, thinking while you remember you exist. uh, So it's kind of a little bit uh, anti-abstract and theoretical, at least uh, for most of the authors. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about your introduction to existentialism and how this became a subject you were interested in. Well, as, uh, I was a, as a young man, I was going through a very, very painful divorce and breakup, and I picked up Kierkegaard and uh, found uh, great solace in him, and uh, continues to, to walk with him for the last uh, about 35, 40 years. <laughs> so it was more therapy than, than anything. I was actually in graduate school uh, getting ready to write a dissertation on Plato, and I just, in, uh, at this very difficult time, I picked up Kierkegaard and... Uh, he helped me make sense of suffering in some way. Help me, help me see it as a, an activity rather than something passive. Something made me believe that uh, you could either suffer well or poorly. That it wasn't just some like disease you're going through. Mm-hmm. And so now you have made it as a professor of philosophy at Saint Olaf College, which mm-hmm. I want to get to in a little bit. Um, but first of all, you're also a boxing trainer. How oh, yeah. how does a philosophy years. professor become a boxing trainer? How does that work? Yeah. Well, this uh, I have a long, long background in boxing, but uh, philosophy is a very combative uh, intellectual sport. I mean, you're always trying to, people are always trying to pick apart each other's arguments. People sometimes will work for months and months on, a, on, a, on an idea, and uh, someone will try to knock the pins off Monday. So I find it very violent like that. Mm-hmm. So if you go to a philosophy uh, symposium or whatever, there'll be people, you know, uh, you know and, uh, trying to take your arguments apart, things you've been working on for a long time. So it's very, uh, even going back to Socrates, it's very, very combative. And I'd rather uh, take a punch in the nose than be made to feel stupid. So I think, <laughs> the, box, I think the philosophy is more violent. 
And so, um, as a professor, is this book based on lectures, lessons you've had in courses with your students? Well, yeah, that, that comes up a lot, but uh, my thought was that I've been working with, as I said in the book, uh, it's Seneca that says, uh, if you don't return from studying philosophy a better person every day, then you're, you're wasting your time. And my sense was that having studied Kierkegaard especially for so many years, I ought to be able to distill some wisdom from all that contact, or that would say something, you know, and, and uh, so I tried to, to try to uh, articulate some of the main insights I've gotten from these folks, and of course I, I do talk about it with my class, so I'm teaching existentialism right now, mm-hmm. so, uh, yes, I, I, I do use it in class quite a bit, and get feedback from students, too. Do you, do you think you'll have them read your book in class? <laughs> they've read a couple sample chapters and really uh, and really enjoyed it because they said it's a lot easier to read than Kierkegaard. <laughs> um, speaking of because Kierkegaard, the reason I, I, I try to use a lot of examples, uh, really uh, examples from real life, because I feel if you can't uh, provide an example of what you're talking about, again, there's something missing. Mm-hmm. So that's why the book shifts a little bit back and forth between. Uh, explaining the thoughts of uh, Kierkegaard and company and Nietzsche and, uh, and personal stories. All right. Um, so speaking of Kierkegaard, I want to talk about a quote that you use from him in most of the chapters, um, which every time I read it sounds like it could be a tongue twister for actors. Yeah. Um, the self is a relation that relates itself to itself or is the relations relating itself to itself in the relation? Yeah. Can you break that down for us? Oh, sure. It's easy. <laughs> yeah, I think there, there. It's, it's the first. It's the. Uh, it's the first page of his greatest book. I think the sickness on a death, and uh, there he's emphasized that the self is an activity, that the self is a self-relating activity. So, um, and one of the things I try to stress in this book is that while we might not have choice about uh, what our emotions are, like anxiety, uh, depression, uh, we do have some sway over how we relate to those emotions. So I, I try to relate that quote to our relationship, our relationship with our emotional life. So I might not be able to, to um, avoid feeling anxious or in a, have a, in, in a funk, but I have a lot of uh, choice about how to interpret that, how to how to how to deal with it, and uh, that's one of the connections I make with that important passage. But there he's stressing the, the, that the self is an activity, not a thing. So for him, for example, he was. He always talked to, uh, you know, his life is a meditation on the Christian faith, and um, he'll, he'll, he never said he was a Christian, he always said he was becoming a Christian. So he always stressed the striving aspect of existence. Mm-hmm. So the self as an activity basically just means that it's what we do with our emotions, the circumstances we're given, et cetera, et cetera. No, in that case, well, for him, he goes on to say, at least in the first part of the Sixth Founded Death, that we have this infinite aspect and this, this uh, finite aspect of ourselves, and we have, a, uh, a, a, we have possibility and we have necessity, we have, we're, we're eternal in some sense and also temporal, and that part of the job of a human being is to relate these different aspects to one another. Mm-hmm. Right? So you have this infinite dimension, these possibilities, and this finite dimension, dimensions, and Part of our task in life is to is to relate them to one another. That's that's what the self does, mm-hmm. and uh, consciously. So, so that's that's part of what he's getting at there. All right, and and one of these um, things you talk about, um, I think it's the first chapter actually, um, is about anxiety. And there was an interesting um, question you posed, which I want to ask you to elaborate a little more on. Um, and it's should we extinguish anxiety if we can? 
um, just in terms of, you know, medicine um, right. and medication for that. Right, right. Uh, yeah, so for, for, for Kierkegaard, it's through anxiety that we ought to come to understand that we're free human beings. And that was, that's what the linchpins of existential thinkers. I mean, Sartre takes that up, Heidegger takes that up. It's a very important thought, and uh, so we shouldn't think of it as a disease. Now, it can get to, now Kierkegaard's very clear that it can be dangerous and it can become uh, an illness. But he also says, look, if you learn to be anxious in the right way, you've learned the ultimate life. So he has a very positive take on anxiety. It's a sign that we're spirits. It's almost as though uh, anxiety, it's an anxiety that you get this calling to become yourself. You know? but, he, uh, but again, he thinks it can be dangerous. And, uh, but we, uh, you know, today it's treated as a, just, just get rid of it. It's just a symptom. Get rid of it as fast as you can. And uh, that's one of the pictures uh, as I draw in that, I think in that chapter uh, with, with, with boxing. A lot of what, what I teach in boxing has to do with uh, uh, when kids are, my, my boxers are getting ready for bouts or the first bout, uh, they're, they're very anxious and then I try to uh, get them to, to be able to, uh, to, not pan, to not become panic about the sense they're feeling a panic, to be able to deal with anxiety, to be able to sit on the couch with it. I think it's a very important thing in life and many people's lives are destroyed because they're fleeing from it. They can't sit with it. And uh, so that's one of the lessons I got from Kierkegaard is to, be able to try to try to try to be able to sit with it, not to panic about feeling panicked. And again, I try to pass it on to my students and my boxers. And so, to a certain extent, there's a value to anxiety. There is words. a value. Yeah, there is a value for yeah, sure. That this understanding of uh, again that we're free. And for Kierkegaard, it has a lot to do with what the, what you should be anxious about. You know, we need to think about what we should be anxious about. Mm-hmm. And then in a later chapter, you talk about the distinction between despair and depression, which often people can conflate into one. Can you elaborate a little bit on that, that distinction? Yeah, uh, I think we've collapsed collapsed the distinction, and I think Kierkegaard helps us to to resuscitate it. And uh, it's a distinction between uh, psychological and spiritual disorders. I mean, everyone talks about, uh, oh, my spiritual life is very important to me, but blah, blah, blah. But we basically conflate the... the, the psychological and spiritual, and uh, I think uh, so. Depression would be a feeling, and um, that uh, you know that that again can come and go. A mood, uh, but despair would be uh, is much more a matter of like giving up on yourself because of your depression, or just like feeling indifferent, becoming indifferent. So it really, I speak of despair as a as a, as a uh, as a way of relating to as a as a, neg- as a as a bad way of relating to your de- depression, right? Whereas the, there, some people might feel in a funk and say, "Well, I still need to be a loving person. I still need to reach through this pain," and uh, that wouldn't be despair. So Kierkegaard, I think, considered himself a person who was he said definitely thought he was dis- depressed, but he didn't. I don't think he thought of himself as in despair. So the idea that you could be psycho you could have psychological problems and be spiritually healthy that's that's the, the claim there, and I think that's something that we don't recognize in our society today so in a sense despair is this choice to surrender in a way whereas depression yeah, it's is kind of surrendering to the giving up on for Kierkegaard you know for, for Kierkegaard it meant giving up giving up on your God relationship so he related to faith but for in secular terms I think it's giving up on the project of becoming yourself of, of kind of you know, surrendering this uh, your moral and your moral aspirations of uh, and uh, that's when depression can become despair. So I want to look at the subtitle a bit. Um, how to live authentically in an inauthentic age. So what, what do you mean by that? What is living authentically? Well, uh, 
being a, there's a couple of different notions to that. One is that that you you have a uh, Kierkegaard would say that you, that you're born with this potential to become a, a self, a spiritual a spiritual being in some way, and uh, to become authentic is to become your true self. Now the other notion, say a Nietzschean type notion, is that uh, to be authentic is really to to be creative and forge the self. So it has a couple of different meanings in these, uh, these these different thinkers, right? So the one idea would be you're born with a certain kind of self, and the other being that to be authentic is to create yourself as you go along in life, to be creative. Mm-hmm. So what? Um, so living that authentic self, um, being creative, like what? What does that mean exactly? Well, not going along with the herd, mm-hmm. not, being, not, not going by herd values, not measuring yourself by other people. Uh, Developing your own valuations of life and your own uh, your own path and forging your own path. So this yeah this possibility so that you have this possibility of creating a it's just a, of a, of a creating a life that you it, you know in um in Sartre's the most famous essay in uh, existentials well, the most most republished essay would be uh, Sartre's one existentials of humanism and Sartre says that well, when you who's uh, who again believes God is dead and uh, but yet says that. Uh, when, when a human being chooses, they choose for all humankind. And I, and I think by that, Sartre means that your life is, is in effect an answer to the question, what does it mean to be a human being? And uh, some, to and, and to really try to work that out, uh, to think about that, and to be uh, try to be creative and uh, uh, be aware of that uh, is would be to be authentic. I think for. I think it's one, one way of thinking about the authenticity as opposed to just, well, i got to get a job, blah, 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 you know, just to go along with the, with the moth. And that's what it hurt. Uh, and that's why one of the things, I, one of the questions I always press them up, bring up to my students is they're always coming to me and wanna, they want to talk about what they're going to be doing in the future, their jobs, which is very understandable when you're in college and everything. But uh, I try to get them to think about what kind of human being do you want to be? What kind of person do you want to be? And they don't very seldom think of that. And uh, so that would be thinking about what kind of person you want to be and trying to become it. That would be an authentic and that would that would be one way of thinking about authenticity. But these terms like authenticity and uh, as, I, as I mentioned in the, in the book and despair, they're not like uh, when we talk about those terms, you can't define them in the way that you might a, a table or a chair, right? I mean, mm-hmm. they're they're quite they're somewhat amorphous. So there's not like one definition of authenticity. It's a couple of different views on it, but. Uh, I think it has. Uh, I think of it in terms of thinking seriously about what kind of person you want to be and, and try to become that. All right. Uh, so, Gordon, we just have one more question for you, and mm-hmm. this is a question that we ask all of our guests on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Since this is primarily for teachers and their students, who was your favorite teacher? Oh, my favorite teacher. I mean, like uh, you don't mean in terms of books. You mean like actual teacher? Um, how, however you want to interpret it. Oh, Philip <laughs> Professor Philip Reef. He was uh, my mentor. Uh, and it's just he, he appears in many places in the book, and he was the one that came up with it. He was a great, great, renowned Freud scholar, and uh, one that talked about the triumph of the therapeutic cult. Uh, the triumph of the therapeutic. He he was the one who could see the therapeutic culture dominating that it, where everything would become therapy. You know, we have your experts and life, lifestyle engineers, and he was just an uh, just a, a remarkable teacher who went way out of his way to. Uh, one of the, and one of the great lessons, he, you know, when I was in graduate school, he was just, he um, he took me, as, you know, he saw that I was ambitious and was writing and said, look, he said, look, if you want to be a writer, go be a writer, but if you want to be a teacher, you know, if, you want to, if you're going to go into the ac- academia, you need to 
recognize that your main job is to teach and be a ment- and be a, a father figure to uh, a parental figure to your students to be someone they could look up to. And he said, most academics are too narcissistic, too too self-involved, too want they just want to write the next forgettable article and they don't want to do that. So that was a great lesson to get as a uh, as a graduate student. You know, when you're you were just interested in your research and everything. And uh, so he was just just marvelous, really. He and I try to pass on. And, and he would always stress that if you really care about students, you'll tell them what they don't want to hear. And he would often tell me what I didn't want to hear. And uh, I try to pass on his lessons in, in, every day. So I'm very just blessed to have had him as a professor. All right. Well, that's great. I, di- I did wonder when I was reading about that if it was going to be him, if that was going to be your answer. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's, I got a big picture of him on my wall. And, yeah, he was... He was and uh, so, yeah. Great. Well, Gordon, thank you so much. This has oh, been a delightful really chat. Appreciate the, really appreciate you talking with me and uh, great questions. And uh, I'm very grateful. Of course. Not a problem. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Harper Academic Calling. Subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite third-party app for more episodes. And be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.